Hello, Marcus here again with another special holiday encore presentation of the Just Some Musings podcast. Justin and I are taking the holidays off from recording new episodes, so instead we're rebroadcasting our most popular episodes of the year. Our number two most listened to episode was our discussion on education savings planning. Specifically, we devote a lot of time in this episode to the Registered Education Savings Plan, or RESP. If you have any question about RESPs after listening to this episode, don't hesitate to reach out to either one of us via the podcast website at nuhs.ca slash podcast. For further reference, you can find pretty much all the material we discussed at my RESP wiki page at muhs.ca slash RESP. Enjoy. Hi, you're listening to the Justin Musings podcast with Justin Lee and Marcus Muse. We're two advisors with CG Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss what's on our minds. Any trusted links we refer to, as well as an archive of past podcasts, can be found on muse.ca slash podcast. Please enjoy our largely unedited and unfiltered discussion for the week. Thanks, Justin. This week we are talking all things education planning, so primarily RESPs, and I think we talk a little bit about our own, our own experiences as well. It's also 20 years, just today, today being August 25th, uh, it is actually 20 years to the day that uh, I started my first job outside, uh, out of university. And uh, that was... Graduated uh, in 2003? Uh, uh, spring of 2003. Or 2002? Yeah, 2003. Okay. And then I uh, took the summer off as long as possible. I remember asking HR, when's the latest day I can start? And uh, <laughs> they said August 25th, which was a Monday. I said, okay, I'm taking mm-hmm. that day. And uh, yeah, that was the day I uh, showed up at the main gate <laughs> at uh, Fort Mac to uh, get my uh, ID card and everything. So, cool. Yeah, twenty. Years. So you, you graduate with an engineering degree. You had an actual marketable skill. <laughs> Got a job pretty much right away. <laughs> I graduated with a business degree, which is like, you know, hire me to be CEO because I had an international <laughs> business uh, major here. I had the summer off, but it wasn't my choice. <laughs> I didn't get a job until December. <laughs> I didn't, in you know, I, I didn't even go to my convocation because I was probably in Thailand or Malaysia or somewhere at the time in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to fly back. You know, like, it would have been nice to have the photo off. But uh, but that kind of goes to, uh, I think what we're going to talk about today <clears throat> is that, you know, um, marketability and also, uh, you know, in, in essence, uh, post-secondary education and, you know, some of the costs that are attributed to it these days. What, what it might cost in the future? And, mm-hmm. you know, with that things like student loans and, and more importantly, more particularly, uh, RESPs. So let's do an entire episode on everything education related, I guess, Ooh. financial planning, education related. This is, this is, we're going to go at least an hour here, right? <laughs> I, I, we're probably going to, and, and it's timely too, because it's September or it's pretty darn close yep. to September. And it'll be well, September when we publish this. Yeah. And, uh, there are people of all, you know, it's the new, it's the start of the real year, right? With, uh, even if you don't have kids, right? It's like it's people are going back. It's a whole, kind of that sentiment, right? Summer's over. I have to deal with the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> so in general, I think right now it, it's sort of, uh, I mean, if you had the, the good graces and good fortune of having, uh, you know, parental support or family support, um, education is expensive these days. And uh, one of the vehicles that uh, people use or families will incur- also use as a tool to help uh, pay for post-secondary and post-secondary doesn't necessarily mean a university or college education it can be vocational mm-hmm. school it can be a, a numerous of you know other um you know trainings right two year four year one year whatever the case may be and uh so the resp was sort of developed in order to help 
people save towards that? And uh, I know that you have a, a, a fairly uh, a good wiki on, on RESPs. So why don't you kick us off and, and kind of give us a, a kind of a broad overview of what they are and, and what they're meant for. Yeah, so the timing of this podcast kind of coincides with my annual update of my RESP wiki. So it was originally just a blog post about RESPs that I wrote many years ago. And uh, because things keep changing, uh, not only just our legislative things keep changing, but also I, ha I always had a bunch of links. There's always been links in the, in the article to various government websites that give you more information, but the government keeps changing those web, those, those web URLs every, every year, literally every year. I just went through it yesterday, updated everything. Almost all the URLs from exactly a year ago were changed, which <laughs> one good thing about government websites, if you're ever looking for any type of information, whether it's about RESPs, RRSPs, retirement, um, you know, benefits, Google is really, really good. Like their website is very well indexed on Google. So you just search anything and you'll find a government website with, you know, the, the right information. But um, anyway, so kicking it off, um, I, when it comes to RESPs, I, I obviously I don't have any kids, so I don't have any personal experience with RESPs, but I have opened a lot of RESPs for clients. A lot of my client base are in their 30s and 40s, and you know, I've, I probably deal more with people setting them up and saving in them than actually taking money out, mm -hmm. although uh, there's some of that now going on more and more as, as people's kids get older. Um, our RESPs are wonderful. I, they weren't really around when we were in school, I guess. I think they just sort of started out in the 1990s, right? And there were no grants until probably late 90s. So mm -hmm. we didn't benefit as much from them. But yeah, my, they were not a reality yet. And, and, and when we started, right, we did, they didn't even exist. No, there's other ways to save. But uh, but yeah, the uh, the generous grants are, are what really make them worthwhile. So one thing I'll kind of start out with saying is when it comes to education savings, one thing to sort of be to be mindful of is the priorities of what you're saving for. Uh, most you know, typical people in their 30s and 40s, they have a variety of different things they should be focusing on their, in their financial plan. Mm -hmm. um, one being, you know, what happens in case of disaster. And, and we've had these discussions about insurance with our friend Jeff. And two, the bit most important thing I think is once you get to that age is plan for your retirement. And if you cannot, if you can't afford to save for your retirement, you definitely should not be saving in an RESP. You should not be prioritizing the RESP over the RRSP because your kids will have options. If there's not enough money saved up for their education, you know, one, they might not need it. Uh, two, they can borrow money and then they have a lifetime to pay that back. Uh, your retirement is more important because there will be a point in time when you have to call it quits. You can't work anymore and you need to have money saved up. Um, and there's no other alternatives. And you don't want to have to depend on your kids for that because they're already saddled with, with, with student debt, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's always the first thing I say when it comes to RESPs. I love the program. I love talking about RESPs, but look at your priorities first. And everyone's situation is different. It is interesting because you, you, I think a lot of parents will want to be or consider to be, you know, oh, these are my children. I want to be selfless. I want to be able to save for them first. Yep. Maybe I'll work another year or two or however many long after the fact, right? But, um, And it is a shorter term goal. It, you know, it you is. see it as yeah. kids are going to school first, then I retire. So save for kids' education first. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the big compelling thing is the, is the grant money. So yep. looking at the grant money. And uh, I would say if you want to know some of the definitions of the stuff that I'm going to talk about, uh, go, to my, uh, go to my wiki page to find that. The link will, of course, be in the show notes of this uh, episode. Mm -hmm. uh, that is at muhs.ca slash RESP. Uh, but the grants, the basic grant that almost well, that everybody everybody qualifies for, if, if, if it's a child um, under the age or up to the age of 17, they qualify for the Canadian Education Savings Grant. And that grant is a 20% match of your contributions. Uh, children are eligible for $500 each year that they're alive in Canada as residents of Canada. That's, that's a key thing too. And uh, so what that means is if you start saving for a kid right away, you can put $2,500 aside um, and get $500 matched from the federal government and keep doing that each year. 
the grant is, uh, it does carry four to some extent. So if you don't use it, if you don't start saving right away, it's not lost. You can uh, carry it forward pretty much indefinitely with, with one restriction. Each year, you can basically qualify, or the child qualifies for one year, the current year of grants, plus one previous year, no more. So that means if you don't save until they're, you don't start saving until they're five years old, you can't put five times 2,500 and get all that grant money. What you'd be doing then is you basically would double up your payment, if you can afford it, double up your contributions, put $5,000 in each year, and then each year you're going to be basically getting the current year grant plus one previous year until you've used up all those previous carry forward years. Yeah. One year per year, catch up, yeah. Yep. So there's a couple of limitations to know. One is the overall contribution limit, which is $50,000 for the lifetime of the plan per child, per, per beneficiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beneficiary, or sorry, the, uh, the grant limit is 7,200. That's a number that hasn't changed for many years. It's still 7,200 from back in the days when the annual limit was 400. So I think 7,200, is that divisible by four? It would be, yeah, 18, right? But then, yeah, or, yeah <clears throat> now you're looking at uh, just about 14 years, yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's this weird number of 7,200. They, they haven't updated that. I hope at some point they update it to 7,500 to make the math a little bit easier. Uh, so, so yeah, that limits, that that lifetime limit for the grant currently is 7,200, and uh, the child is, is eligible for grants every calendar year up until the year in which they turn 17. The eligible eligibility is by calendar year. So what that means is if a child is born on December 31st of, say, 2022, so currently they're still, they haven't reached their first birthday yet, but they actually have two years of eligibility now in 2023. They have that eligibility for the, the one day that they were alive in 2022 mm-hmm. plus 2023. The flip side of that is when they reach 17, uh, that year is their last year of eligibility versus a child born in 2023 obviously has a whole extra year of eligibility. So mm-hmm. it's always by calendar year. And I explain that a little bit better in the post. Do you think that uh, with the limit of, of the 7200 or the you know $500 kind of maximum per year the 20% match or the CESG um, do you think that is something and there's math behind it as well but in general you know you, you talked about how you know you got to prioritize your savings uh, the various different mm-hmm. plans that you can save towards um, do you want to maximize that CESG grant uh, as much as possible as quickly as possible or knowing that you can kind of catch up later on, you know, in, 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 in the, in the teenage years, perhaps, or maybe just start a few years yep. later, right. Is that, you know, it's always going to be available up to, right up until certain years, but um, do you want to leave the money on the table as, as I've heard some people try to uh, try to explain it? Yeah. If, if you can afford to get it, I would try not to leave it on the table. And I was going to mention too, with the carry forward grant, the way it works, the, the last year, if you, if you're deferring doing any contributions to an RESP and you want to wait, and, but you still want to end up getting all that grant money. Mm-hmm. Age 10 is the last year to get that. Because if you think about it, age 10, so 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, gives you eight calendar years in which to contribute to the plan, do the, doing the $5,000, so the, the double up contributions for the current year and one previous year. Uh, to get to that 7,200, you basically need to do seven times 1,000, getting $1,000 of grants each year. And then in the final year, contribute, uh, a fa- or, yeah, I guess 1,000 to get that extra $200. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is if you wanted to defer contra- contributing, you have to kind of think of it doing this by age 10. The other thing that comes up a lot is sometimes people are a very, you know, they have the means to contribute a lot all at once. Should they contribute the whole 50000 right up front? And there are some parents who can do that. Um, if you do that, you're maxing out the contribution for the lifetime and you're only getting one year of grant money. Because you can't then the next year, you're only getting the just the $500. Yeah. yeah. You can't contribute the next year because you're already at the max. Um, is that worth doing? And the math, the basic math, uh, considering time value of money, and if we assume certain rates of return, 
Makes sense. You actually will save up more over the long term, assuming normal markets, if you put 50000 in all at once and have that invested for 18 years and then the kid takes the money out in, when, they're, when they're in school. It's a time value, right? Because what you're doing is you're basically providing 17 years yeah. of $50,000 growing as opposed to um, 2500 plus 500 3000 every year for four, you know, 14 years and then growing afterwards, right? You're, you're, you're front-loading all of those contributions and giving up $6,700 worth of grant. You're giving up those six thousand, yeah, sixty-seven hundred dollars worth of grants, um, but you're you're having your money in the markets more. There is a benefit to that too, in that there's less complication down the road because that grant money potentially can be clawed back if, if the child doesn't go to university. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have to worry about that grant money, that's just one less worry. Yep. So if you're going to get, if you can make it back in growth by having the money in the markets longer, that's worthwhile thinking about. Yep. If the markets are volatile, and if the year that you contribute happens to be the year two thousand, which was you know when the markets were at their high point. The, uh, the market return since 2000, if you were globally diversified, was actually quite low. So, um, you know, there's always that chance mm -hmm. versus if you're putting money in every year and you can take advantage of dollar cost averaging. Mm -hmm. um, one other alternative I recommend to people, if they have the means to put in a lot at once, uh, do, uh, I believe it's $15,000 in the first year and then contribute the $2,500 each year because then you're leaving yourself enough room to still do the dollar cost averaging each year, still get the grant money each year. 16500 yeah, so yeah. you did the math. That's that's one other way of doing that. Um, and then after sixteen five hundred, yeah. I think just speeds it up a little bit more. I think fifteen thousand right. you can do until they're age seventeen. Mm -hmm. Then you're still um, getting twenty five. Then you do the twenty five hundred dollars every year subsequent, and then you still get your grants, right? You maximize the yep. CESG grants. Uh, but then again, you're kind of front loading uh, uh, funds that are sheltered inside the RESP early on that have you know seventeen years or, or eighteen years approximately of growth. Or, time. Yeah. or you can also just take 50,000, divide it by 15 and do 3333 a year. You can do that too. So a lot of ways to skin the cat in that sense, yes. Once, yeah, once you understand how that carry forward works, and that's kind of the most complicated thing. It's not like RSP carry forward where you can just, you know, whatever carries forward, you can use it all at once. Mm -hmm. um, so it does have those limitations. I do find that one psychological barrier to that is, is that um, it's foregoing the money on the table, as, as we said, is that it's quote unquote free money. <clears throat> and, and just getting over that mental hump that the math would show that front loading it, if you have the means in doing so, actually is better off in the end, but you're not getting the grant. And it's just the, like the concept of that I found uh, in conversations with some people is that it's, uh, they can't get over it. And when that's fine, it's okay. You work mm -hmm. with the behavior, go with the, the, the headspace and the, uh, and the thought process of, of the clients. But uh, yeah, the math states one thing and, and then, then the, uh, this is a good example of where behavior or uh, just yes, leaving grants is, is, is uh, untenable of uh, a thought for some. Just, and, and the investment behavior too, you know, if you happen to max out, you did your, your full 50,000 in the year 2021, right now you're looking at a slightly negative return from that point on and you're kind of wishing you had money to put in this year sure. so you could take advantage of lower prices, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But over the longer term- And two decades even is if a, you look at a reasonable scenario, amount of time. <laughs> exactly, and even if you look at the scenario of, of having put it in in the year 2000, you still, even at that sort of, you know, the, the S&P did something like 5% average since then, mm -hmm. um, that still ends up with a better result than if you had contributed year by year by year, mm -hmm. and then sort of had more of it backloaded. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were just talking about situations for people who are very, you know, very affluent and have that ability to put in a lot at once. Mm -hmm. um, what's available for people who can't put in as much? Um, yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm currently doing it um, on an annualized thing, right? Um, we're, we're doing the, the 
25 because I have two children now. And this is where you get into the situation mm-hmm. where, you know, it, we, we, we talk about single numbers or, you know, single individual uh, beneficiaries, but then you multiply it by two children and all of a sudden, you know, it's $5,000 a year. That's 5000 a year, yeah. If you want to maximize the grant. And then that on top of a potential TFSA contribution, that on top of potential RES, RRSB contribution, mm-hmm. what have you, it ends up being, it adds up very quickly. And then, you know, three children, four children, you're, you know, 50, yeah, that's a very, very. I've got bad. a lot of I've got a lot of clients like that, and I yeah. always stress, uh, I emphasize, um, you know, think RRSP first, and if you put, yeah, yeah, if you put a few hundred dollars a month aside or whatever, a hundred dollars a month aside, even um, for the RESP, that's great. There's free mm-hmm. money on the table, and yeah. maybe get the rest down the road, or even if you don't, it's not not that big of an issue. But uh, what I was going to get to too, like for yes. for lower income Canadians, there's a few other things, a few other grants available, and they're really trying to. They're trying to uh, sort of persuade people to at least put something aside. Yes, twenty five hundred a year per child is out of reach for many, but um, the there's an additional CESG as well as a Canada Learning Bond, mm-hmm. both of which can make just putting five hundred a, a year aside uh, very very fruitful for for that savings plan. So mm-hmm. um, I have some information in my blog post on these two, and there's certain numbers to take into account, and they have to do with family income. So if family income is, and the number now is about 53000 or lower, then the, the family should qualify for the Canada Learning Bond. The Canada Learning Bond is basically just $500 up front to get an RESP started, mm-hmm. and then $100 a year after that just for, for nothing. You don't have to put anything in. It's just some money that goes into the plan. So the low-income family has some money set aside for their kid's education. The additional CESG goes on top of the regular CESG for income. So with family income is below 53000 they get an extra 20%. So when they put in money, and that's on the first, just on the first $500. So if they put in $500, they get an extra, well, basically an extra $100. So for a total of $200 mm-hmm. of grant money. And if their income is between 53000 and roughly 107000 it's a 10% top-up. So in that case, they would get an extra $50 on 500 So that family putting in just $500 a year per beneficiary are getting as much as, so if they're in the lower tier, if they're getting the counter learning bond, they're getting as much as $300 in grants. So $800 a year put aside for their kids, plus mm-hmm. that initial 500. Mm-hmm. And, and even just the additional CESG, you know, if you're putting in 500 a year, that's, it's still worthwhile. Yep. It's, and again, it's a lot I think it's the behavior and, and on a bigger picture for myself, it also, you know, at that point in time, uh, in the future, when the, the children are of age to make that decision, uh, then they mm-hmm. see that, oh, you know what? This is something that my parents or, or, or somebody else did uh, on my behalf. And I think it just goes along with that kind of like the financial literacy as a whole and, and just being and seeing that over time, every little bit, if it's a couple hundred dollars a year, $500 a year, um, that, you know, it's growing over that time. So I think in general, it builds um, good family uh, financial uh, awareness. And, and, and that, again, that muscle, that exercise of continuously saving for something down the road. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Now I know that in Alberta we used to have um, grants provincially. That's no longer the case, but there's still a couple provinces in the country that uh, have additional grants on top of uh, the CE, the federal grant. So yeah, it's just BC and Quebec that are left over. Saskatchewan had one that was discontinued, I think, a few years ago. Yeah, the Alberta one was nice. That was originally five hundred dollars uh, initially when the child was born. My first child, my first child. Yeah, so got your it. first child got it, right? My second child did not. So yeah, if they were born after, I think, 2005 on the centennial for the province, or was it 2007? I think they introduced in 2007, but it was if the child was born after 2005, they just automatically got that $500, and then mm-hmm. there was $100 at certain ages. I bring this all up just because uh, even though it's been canceled for years, there are people who probably have this money in their plans from that grant. 
Um, when they phased it out, they basically just converted that grant money in terms of how the RESPs track it into just regular, essentially accumulated income for the plant. So that means the province isn't going to ever claw it back. It's it's in the plan. It's just counted as part of the growth of the plan. Mm. But um, yeah, it was nice when it, when it existed. Yeah, <clears throat> you mentioned that you don't have children, but you have you have nieces and nephews, or niece and nephew. And um, I mean, I have children, so I, you know, I have a mm-hmm. family plan, right? Um, I know some uh, families. I've generally advised uh, clients that even if with the, with their first child. Um, with the un- unknowing in the future whether they choose to have another one, um, there's a family plan that you can also do. You can have mm-hmm. a family plan for only one child as well, right? And so yep. just kind of a high level, you know, can you, what is the differences between an individual and a family plan? And also uh, in thinking about, say, your situation is that who could you open up an RESP for? It doesn't, you don't necessarily need to have a child yep. to do so. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <clears throat> so family plans, first off, you know, I, I say it makes no, no sense pretty much to open an individual plan. I mean, you can, like you said, you can open a family plan for one child. You can open several family plans and have one child on each. Mm-hmm. Um, but why not open a family plan and have all children on it? That way you're kind of, we're going to talk about some of the downsides of RESPs later on, or not really downsides, but what are kind of the pitfalls if the child doesn't go to school. Mm-hmm. But when you open a family plan, you automatically address one of those pitfalls, which is what if one of your kids doesn't go to school? Or what if there's just an, an inequity in who needs how much? You know, one yeah. child goes to Harvard and the other child goes to SAIT, right? Or has a different program um, or different degree. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> two-year degree versus six-year degree. And, and all these different types of degrees, they all qualify to use that money. Uh, there's a long list of, of schools, including trade schools, vocational schools, that, yep. for Pilot which that school, money can be used. It's not, exactly, things, yeah. yes. it's not just universities. So, And there's a link, a link in, in my article on that too. But uh, the family plan just makes total sense because then what, what can happen, like I said, you know, that money can uh, that's saved up can go, more can go to one child versus the other. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're all, uh, you know, full full siblings uh there's there's really usually not any complications when it comes to the grant money either um so who can open plans and and this this comes up a lot so you know me being an uncle i'd, I'd like to open a plan for my niece and nephew i, I don't have the cash flow right now for it but uh <laughs> uh if i if i wanted to yes uh, <laughs> i don't think so i don't i don't want to lock myself into have, having to do this but as it is right now the uh, they have an resp the parents opened it and mm-hmm. the grandparents are mostly adding money to it mm-hmm. Um, what happens, what I see most is that grandparents open RESPs. And this is something I addressed in my blog. Uh, I added it a few years ago when I actually had a real life situation come up with clients, uh, grandparents opening RESPs. So what this means is the grandparents are opening the subscribers. So subscriber are the people who are, are, are running the plan, who are contributing to the plan. Grandparents open the RESP, usually jointly for the beneficiary grandchildren. And sometimes I see it where grandparents have beneficiaries of from various families where they're cousins of each other all within a family plan that's possible too so, so what i see happening mostly is, is those grandparents open those plans because they have the money the parents don't have the cash flow to put that extra money into the resp mm-hmm. and of course what happens is the parents sign off an extra form that allows the grandparents to open that plan for them it mm-hmm. would be the same if an uncle opens a plan i always recommend against that if as long as there's no reasonable reasonable reason why you wouldn't want to have the parents open the plan and just give the money to the parents, have the parents contribute. So the reasons are a couple. One is coordination. So if you have, uh, the, let's say the parents open an RESP and the grandparents open an RESP and they're both shuffling money into it, uh, the coordination of the grants, you know, what if the grandparents contribute first right away in January and use up all the grants eligibility, then the parents put money in and obviously nothing comes then from the government. Um, that's one reason not to, not to have mm-hmm. competing plans. The other is, is survivorship. And this is literally what happened with some clients where, um, the grandparents passed away and, uh, and then this RESP ended up being part of the estate. 
there was there, there are some complications here and, and it is kind of gray area so I don't really want to talk too much about it because I don't I don't know enough about what happens when those grandparents pass away what happens to the RESP mm-hmm. if it is instructed in the will what should happen then it's a little bit cleaner but if it's not that RESP can end up being collapsed and become part of the estate what happens then is that grant money disappears it goes back to the government mm-hmm. and, and that is the the actual thing that happened in the case of some clients because grandparents are usually older and won't live as long and won't live till the kids are even in, in school right. often. My grandparents died, all of them, when I was in university. It, it just doesn't make sense for them to have that plan open as, the, as themselves as subscribers. It makes more sense for the parents to have it open. The only reason I would not do that, have the parents open the RESP, is if there's a reason to believe those parents are not good with money. And, you know, if you give them money, they might not put it into the RESP or they might take money out of the RESP or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the only reasons not to, uh, sorry, that's the only reason to do a grandparent subscriber RESP. If there's no real reason that you should not even entertain that thought. You should have the parents of the child, the beneficiary be the ones as subscribers of the plan. When there's, when they're joint owners and their survivorship, if one parent dies, mm-hmm. there's, it's very, very simple. It stays as an RESP in the surviving parent's hands. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think what I got out of that comment and that experience is that, uh, coordination, Right, having that communication uh, done amongst mm-hmm. the family, uh, whether it's you know intergenerationally between um, aunts and uncles and parents or grandparents to the parents, um, just to make sure that a you know the contribution limits are are being accounted for. It's like having multiple TFSAs. You could put a little bit here, but make sure you don't put more over here. Right? Um, mm-hmm. If you're someone's contributing to this RESP, well, then you want to make sure that you know you're not you're contributing and maybe not getting in any additional grants or running the risk of potentially over contributing down the road. Uh, that fifty thousand dollar limit per beneficiary. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, you want to have communication clear lines so that uh, the parents are understanding what the grandparents are doing. There's recognition of that. The parents, uh, The grandparents also know that this will continue on should they pass and that the children will be the ultimate beneficiaries as intended. And um, that, you know, it, it, I think it, again, kind of helps with those conversations amongst the family to say, this is the goal that we're all trying to achieve or help achieve. Um, let's 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 talk about it and, and, and be open. So. Sorry to hear about your the client situation there in that case, but it, it's certainly a learning point to, for others to, to be aware of. Now, in terms of um, not to go too far off on a tangent, but should there be a marital breakdown and there's a jointly held uh, RESP, mm-hmm. um, just high level touch point, um, anything particular to consider, they can still contribute. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, yep. I'm, you know, again, it's, it's communication amongst the parents. Yeah, there are a couple of things happen. I mean, if it's joint, I recommend if at all possible, leave it joint, you know, continue on as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oftentimes it, it ends up getting split. And then you have the two RESPs and then there's coordination issues. Same yeah, it's not a good situation. And yeah, I, again, I say it's best to keep it joint too, both for coordination as well, yeah. thinking about the survivorship of it too. Really, that money is there for that beneficiary. Um, That's right. And if one of those now divorced parents passes away, mm-hmm. at least then the surviving parent, who one would assume is still looking out for the goodwill of that child, mm-hmm. is then now the sole subscriber, and that money still ends up going to that child for that child's education. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I mean that that happens that happens more frequently than uh, than grandparents dying with RESPs. So so now within the RESP, what can you do within an RESP? You know, you can invest in an RESP. Um, maybe we can touch mm-hmm. upon. Uh, some of the other uh, options that exist. Uh, I know that yes. we both have strong opinions <laughs> about group uh, RESP plans. Uh, they, somehow, they, they, I know because when I was leaving the maternity ward, you know, they give you an envelope and in that envelope, here, mm-hmm. here's your application for your child's SIN number. And here's some other things about, you know, how to, you know, um, uh, support, right, uh, for new parents. Mm-hmm. And, and also, mm-hmm. by the way, 
somehow there's oftentimes a form for a group scholarship trust plan application. And yep, yep. So yes, um, I feel like at one point I should just stand outside a hospital uh, and see anybody with a new baby inside a new, uh, in a brand new car, um, car seat and just say, hey, take this piece of paper out of that envelope and rip it up. But uh, that might be a little bit strong, but it's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> no, you know, you're, you're right. <laughs> These, they, so yeah, so group RESPs, scholarship trusts, they're the same thing. Um, and they are, so what are they? They're based, they're RESPs like any other. They're just a certain type of RESP. And the unfortunate thing is that often parents, when people become parents for the first time, that's the first time they ever hear about RESPs. So my advice to anyone listening or anyone reading my blog post to share that information to anyone you know who's, who's, who hasn't had kids yet or who's going to have kids or whatever so they at least know what's out there. Because, yeah, that's what happens. You're basically, you, you get this information with your child. Setting up a SIN number is one important thing you need to do. If you want to open an RESP, they need to, the child needs to have a social insurance number. So first step, getting that social insurance number. I've got a link in my blog post where to go to do that. Um, but, yeah, then the next thing they get is, you know, the, the actual application form from one of these companies. And, and that's the passive thing they do. The passive is they, they somehow they get these brochures in with the hospitals and they hand these out to newborn. Or to they got a nice parents. brand on the top, right? Sometimes they have a cute baby yep. uh, that's well associated with a, with a baby brand name or, you know, yeah, some, they've, they've gotten in there, right? And again, I'm, and I don't, we don't want to knock. I don't, don't want to knock 100% these plans because at least they're providing mm -hmm. an option. But yep. it's probably yep. a lesser option compared to all the other options out there. It's exactly. And it's just important to know what is out there. And again, yeah. if you're that captive audience, that new parents, and this is the first time you've heard of saving for kids education, you're likely going to go forward with that. And I've, I have a number of clients who that's their first RESP they ever opened just because they didn't know what else was out there. Yep. Um, it's, it's like if you if you meet with an insurance uh, salesperson as, a, as your first financial advisor and the first time they open an RSP for you, they put you into seg funds. That's 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 similar because that's that's the only thing you're being exposed to in that first sort of financial conversation. Mm -hmm. So getting back to these group RESPs, yeah, they are one type of RESP, but they're not the only type. They're often sold as being lower fee than what you could open at your bank. And when you look at it by fees, it is true. It is lower fee total over the lifetime of the plan versus a bank RESP if you're putting it all into the bank's uh, mutual funds. Mm -hmm. um, the thing though is those those fees are very front loaded. You're basically paying a bunch of money up front as opposed to on an ongoing basis through a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. And the bank the bank mutual fund RESP also is not the only option out there. You can open your own RESP with a discount brokerage if you want to have cheap, cheap, cheap. Mm -hmm. And if you don't need the advice, because mm -hmm. you're not going to get advice anyways from a from a scholarship trust. They're just going to set yeah. it up for you. And very structured, a very structured. Uh, very structured, yeah. And if you miss a payment on those group plans, uh, you run the risk of sort of voiding the entire contributions and, and whatnot, right? So it, it's totally it's totally fabricated and made up the, the whole way they, they do these things, like what the fees are, what you have to do to, to, mm. to avoid losing that. It's completely made up. And then oftentimes people think this is just what RESPs are. No, it's not. An RESP is completely open and you can put money in whenever you want. Yep. Like we said, to defer those contributions, those grants, the grants that the, that the scholarship trust people talk about, exact same grants are available in, uh, in any type of RESP. So the one benefit that they talk about this in the scholarship trust is that like the name implies, there is the possibility for a, a scholarship, right? That's the oh, sort of an extra, yeah. extra bit of money that gets yeah. kicked in. In a way, they're kind of like pension plans. So a pension plan, if you live to 100, you really benefit from a pension plan. If you live <laughs> to 65, you don't. A defined benefit pension plan, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. If, uh, if the child goes to, you know, gets their master's degree or whatever, they'll probably get a little bit of extra money out of the plan versus the child who doesn't go to school in which case uh, the, the penalties in terms of getting out, I think you can get your capital out, but obviously the grant money goes away. They can't stay mm -hmm. open as long as normal RESPs. It is, I think uh, it is built in. There's some those models there. that there is attrition. It is, yeah. 
right? And with yeah. that attrition, that allows then uh, the remaining participants uh, to benefit from that. Benefit more, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's not a bad thing if, if you want to if you want to game that. If you think you know, if if my child isn't very smart and doesn't go to university, I don't mind losing a bit. But if they are really smart, I want I potentially want to get some extra money out of it. And then you can try really hard, make sure your kid does well in school and all that. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, they have their pros and cons, mostly cons. Uh, I was going to say, too, about the uh, the way they're marketed. So we were talking about the more passive way. They put the yeah. brochures in the hospitals. Yeah. Um, there are more aggressive ways, and they've been caught uh, doing this, uh, actually um, getting the information from nurses and maternity wards. Uh, there were a few cases of this in Ontario, and there's, there was a class action suit which got dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a class action suit against them in Quebec, just in general, uh, against uh, Group RESPs. I'm not sure how that's going, but um, they're... Like I said, they're very contrived, very formulaic in what they do. Um, if it if it's something that appeals to you, you know, by all means, go for it. But it's important to know what your options are. Yes. That that there, you know, there's there's many ways you can save for kids' education. Yeah. So you you alluded to like uh, you know that's very structured. Um, a, a lot of the banks will have their kind of their core funds for it. I know that uh, uh, one in particular has uh, a line of funds that are ex- explicitly have education fund in there mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. having gone over briefly uh, with the individual yeah, how to invest in one <clears throat> yeah. I had went o- I had gone over um, there a, a person's uh, RESP at a bank at a made held at a major bank and they were kind of complaining as to you know they didn't know what it was right and when you dig on when you dug underneath the hood even though that their child was still had a decade to go before uh, univer- um, post-secondary education of some kind right um, you know, when, when I dug underneath, you realized that that target date fund for a certain time in the future, 10 years down the road, mm-hmm. it was already like 65% in fixed income, for example. And I don't, you know, based on that conversation, that wasn't exactly what uh, the, the client was looking for or was expecting for, you know, 10 more years of potential growth. Right. And so, you know, yeah. some some banks will have that structured and, you know, it's just like a retirement target date fund, but it's an education retirement fund or target date fund, I should say. And so, you know, mm-hmm. do, is your child going to uh, potentially finish grade 12 uh, or, you know, r- regular grade school uh, between, you know, 2030, 2025, 2035, 2040, whatever. And they build it using that that cohort, right, that five year cohort. Yep. <clears throat> and so, yeah, underneath the hood, it, it, it wasn't what that client was expecting uh, nor wanted. Um, but yeah, at least there's options. There's a funds. There's a fund line available. There's other investments available. There, there are a lot of options. That's the other thing that's um, that that isn't made clear when when people open those scholarship trusts. Uh, a scholarship trust actually one of the one of the downsides too is they tend to be very very conservatively invested. And I think very. years back they only they were only in bonds or bond funds. Uh, nowadays they have Government some equities funds, in there. Yeah. Government bonds, yeah. So in terms of what can be invested in an RESP, the restrictions are the same as with an RRSP or a TFSA, more or less. So you can invest in anything in them. Target date funds are actually, and I'm not a big fan of target date funds for retirement. I don't think it makes any sense why you'd want to have a fund that gets, you know, gets to be mostly bonds by the time you retire, because you still usually have decades when you are retired. So you want to be that conservative. Yeah, you don't want to be that conservative. But for the RESPs, it it pays to be a little bit more conservative because it is a shorter time frame. Your child has, if they're newborn, they they have 17, 18 years until they go to school. And then the time frame in which they need that money is four years. So I saw the I've seen the worst case scenario. People started with an RESP at the bank when the child was born, and kept it very aggressive. They started you know 100% equities or 80% equities, and then 2008 rolls along, and that's when the child is is going to school. A child maybe was born in 1991. So some of those first bunch of kids who who RESPs were first open for, they went to school in 2008, and at that time the markets were you know way way down. And they didn't recover until 2013 when the markets, uh, by that time, uh, they've been d- they're done school. You know, mm-hmm. the four years are up. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I saw those people coming to the bank in 2008 during the financial crisis, and their RESPs were, you know, they had the, the crap eaten out of them because of the mm-hmm. markets, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right when the kids needed to go to school. What those parents should have done was gradually over the years reduce the risk allocation, like you know, reduce path, it to a balance, yep. glide path, it, yeah. Man, I mean, in that case, it would have, be, have to be done manually because there weren't many glide path or target date funds back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so they should have really gone balanced when they were within 10 years of, the, of needing the money and then maybe, you know, largely into bond funds by the time they're close to the 18. That's what these glide path or target date funds do automatically. So I think for most people, they, they make sense as opposed to, you know, just being 100% equities and then forgetting about it. It makes sense to be on sort of a target date. I, I often use target date funds for people's RESPs for that reason, so that we're not going to be, be put in that situation where, you know, they need they need the money for school and uh, and, and they're they're Just way more allocated to equities, timing, and the markets yeah. happen to be down. And it, this gets back to that target date for retirement. Target date for retirement. Retirement's many many years. You can suffer a bit of a decline in retirements, but for school, school is only four years, and four years is not enough time for the markets to recover in most cases if there's a big crash. So that's kind of getting into what to invest in. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was going to say on that point about what to invest in, because you can invest in anything, uh, more or less, um, I've used it as a vehicle uh, to help kind of help educate my children about savings mm-hmm. and about investments. And so my oldest is nine years old now. And only just recently have I sort of introduced the concept. Well, we'll talk, you know, allowance and all that is another t- another discussion. <clears throat> But I let it be known that they're, you know, we're saving a little bit for his future. And, you know, you can't open up as a minor his own investment account, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in essence, this, this, this RESP for him and his brother are, are supposed to be for him, right? And so I've used it as, as a vehicle to kind of help bring in some concepts about uh, investments and, and long-term and, uh, savings and things of that nature. And, and, and even bringing up the conversation of ownership, right? Like when you are investing, right? You're, I'd like to think you're investing in businesses. You're, you're a part owner of something, whether it's debt or whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, an equity or some variation of, right. You're investing in something. So what is that something? Right. And so, because, mm-hmm. you know, how do you bring that, you know, and so what I've done is that, uh, you know, classic examples in the past from others would be like, oh, what are your kids interested in, right? Okay, then maybe they watch Disney. Disney might not be the best investment in the last in that last last number of years, right? Um, Lululemon would be something that come up in conversation, Nike, right? Um, in my child's case, right, Nintendo. Nintendo is something mm-hmm. that um, he plays. He likes his Switch. Um, you, know, you know, Pokemon is a, is a real thing. It's an ongoing thing. There's a little bit of Roblox coming in now, right? But at least for the point, uh, you know, he, I asked him, you know, what is he interested in? What does he like doing? You know, what is the concept of ownership? What is a dividend, right? Oh, you know what? If you own shares of some companies, maybe you get a little bit of the money back. It's like, is that enough to buy back, buy, buy Pokemon cards? It's like, maybe, right? And, and so, <laughs> so what ended up happening is that in, in our case, um, I actually uh, bought some Nintendo shares for, uh, for the two of them. And it, it's, it's an interesting In the RESP. Yeah, within the RESP, right? And so that, you know, hopefully, you know, it'll perform in the future. There's a little bit of it. There's a dividend yield with that company as well. But now there's some conversation to say that, oh, when we buy some Pokemon cards or we buy a Nintendo Switch game or whatever, right? In essence, you are actually a part owner of this, right? And then, so then it comes into the other things about what else is he interested in? So now we're trying to have the conversation about what he wants Mm -hmm. to invest in next, right? And... He, he really likes his team burgers, right? So that was an option that came up, right? A&W, uh, income, income <laughs> fund, right? Uh, and then, you know, he's playing Roblox and some other things as well. Um, he got his first pair of Nikes shoes because his friends had some Nikes. They're talking about Jordans already, right? Uh, but he got it as a gift for his birthday um, from, uh, from, uh, from a relative. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's helping spur some conversation. And because he can't own one specifically, but he knows that now 
he's a part owner of something. Um, I found that to be uh, quite engaging and um, trying to bring a little bit some lessons on early that uh, my parents were completely ignorant of and unable to do so in the past. And, you know, nine, 10, now they're starting to ask about allowances and such, right? It's how much do you want to save? How much do you want to spend? How much do you want to give? Um, I found the RESP a, a useful tool and able to help broaden that conversation. So maybe not every parent uh, will be interested in doing that, um, but uh, it's one way that I've looked at. And one thing I've started to kind of suggest for others who might want to have a little bit more uh, engagement with their children about, you know, not only their future, you know, educate, educational goals or expenses, but, you know, how to get there. That's definitely a good way to teach them about investing mm-hmm. and, and also the risk return consequences, right? Yeah. So, you know, right now your kids are too young. They're not really making those calls themselves, right? You <laughs> probably just bring up, this is a product you're using, so why not invest in it? But yeah. maybe when they're teenagers, um, you know, do you want to, do you want to trade in some stocks or buy some investments? You know, here are some auctions, you know, we can put a little bit of your RESP money in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're not putting the entire RESP into Roblox, right? Yeah. You're doing this with a small part of it. Not everything's in Nintendo for sure. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I mean, at least that's a way, I mean, it's, it's a stock market game in a way. Um, and when I was a kid, I remember this, my, my dad set up a stock market game, you know, we okay. looked up the, the stock prices in the, in a newspaper in the back then. Yeah. I don't think yeah. we had internet yet. Um, <laughs> So my, my sister and I, we, we did the stock market game yeah. and I remember hoping my dad at some point would give me some money that I can invest in the markets. And that was just as they were kind of really booming in the late nineties. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't because I would have probably <laughs> lost it all on tech stocks. Yeah. But, um, this is a way where, you know, there's some actual money at play. You can take a little bit of it, invest in what you want. And the consequences, you're going to have a little bit less for your education. If you lose all this money, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it, it's kind of, <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's a good idea. I mean, like, you're laying some foundations yeah. for ownership. Uh, laying some foundations for uh, uh, risk and 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 rate reward trade offs things of that nature, right? Uh, but it, yeah, it, it's I I've, I found it to be a good way to talk. Yeah, and maybe the lesson they learn at the end of the day is uh, the stocks that you, that they dabbled in are not doing anything for them because usually the time when you're buying them is when everybody's talking about it. And you know when you're when you're playing Roblox and using Nintendo, that's when the stock price is at its highest. When that kind of when you when you're when you go into a new phase or whatever, and that sort of no longer is the trendy thing, it goes down. Maybe at the end of the day, they learn that those more diversified investments in the RESP, whether they be ETFs or mutual funds, mm-hmm. uh, those are the ones that really carried it, and those are what paid for your education. And when they're older, then when they start saving for themselves, they they actually plan real saving strategies mm-hmm. and financial planning as opposed to uh, dabbling in stocks. Yeah. But that's lots a lot of lessons, a lot of potential lessons yeah. to be learned. Um, Pokemon seems to be timeless or multi-decade thus far. <laughs> And, and, and now, now that my kids are, are partial owners of Nintendo, I suppose when Super, when Mario two movie comes out or Link movie, Zelda movie comes out or whatever of the, of the uh, universe that is, uh, Nintendo starts coming out with their IP, uh, products, mm-hmm. uh, above and beyond, um, maybe potentially what Marvel had done or Disney had done with their Marvel franchise and Star Wars franchises, right? <laughs> maybe I'm not going to be as annoyed <laughs> for, for my kids, yeah. right? When they want to go see, uh, the next movie or, or what have you, right? So. But yes, um, lots of le- potential lessons to be learned. And uh, in, 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 so at least, it, again, it provides a, a vehicle and a foundation to be able to kind of bring those topics up. So anyway, pers- personal anecdote on that. Uh, yeah, totally. That's, I think that's a, that's a great strategy in, or, in, in a way to help, uh, help educate kids about investing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if, they, if they did want to take the money out when they're in university and buy video yeah. games with it, can they? <laughs> Uh, actually, you, you probably can. I mean, you can buy yeah, laptops, yeah. right? And it doesn't necessarily, you know, funds that are taken out of an RESP 
uh, aren't necessarily have to be shown with an invoice from the educational institution, exactly. right? Um, and, and certainly you can go into more detail on this, right? But like um, room and board, it can just be even rent if you're not living on residence and you're living elsewhere, as long as it can be shown that it's, you know, at that time that they're uh, enrolled in a program of some kind, um, whether and, and it's the expenses can be somewhat related, right? Textbooks, food, living, yeah. uh, vehicle, the laptop that might be used for gaming afterwards as well, <laughs> really, right? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, admitted, admittedly, they're not, yeah, they're not auditing every single receipt that uh, for every single dollar that yeah. comes out of an RESP, right? You do just need to be, uh, you know, within the right time period. But yeah, you, you can largely spend it on anything. And that's that's a very common misconception is that this money has to be st spent for schooling, that you have to itemize the expenses. I get parents coming to me with the, uh, you know, the whole receipt for tuition, books and all that. Mm -hmm. And what I really just need is the confirmation of enrollment, the actual proof of enrollment in the program that it's full time and, mm -hmm. and the name of the students on there. Mm -hmm. uh, not acceptance letter, but the actual proof of enrollment. That's all that's needed in order to take money out of an RESP. Now, breaking this down a bit more, taking money out of an RESP, there's a couple of ways that's done. Yes. If, we'll, just, we'll just talk about if the kid is in school. And if you want to look at the rest about what happens if the kid isn't going to school, you can look at my blog post or we might touch on it towards the end here. Mm -hmm. But um, if the kid is enrolled full time, they're taking with two types of withdrawals, education assistance payments and uh, post-secondary education capital withdrawals. <coughs> Sorry. The second one of those is basically you, the subscriber, the parents taking your capital back out. Uh, I found that at the bank, they actually send that money to the parent's bank account and then the parent gives it to the kid. Um, with us and I think at other brokerages, it's usually just all paid out in one check either to the parents or the or the kid. Mm -hmm. uh, so that post-secondary education capital withdrawal, again, it's your capital that you're taking out. And if the child is enrolled in school, then it does not result in a clawback of grants. If they aren't, then the, the grants that were that were received from that capital get clawed back if they are not if they're not in enrolled in school. The other withdrawal, the education assistance payment. So first of all, that, that first one I mentioned, there's no tax consequence. It's your own capital that you, mm -hmm. that you put into the plan. The second withdrawal, EAP, uh, is a taxable withdrawal. And that EAP consists of grant money and any accumulated income growth, growth in the plan. From, from the, yeah. Growth from the investments, whatever, and interest earned, whatever else. That is taxed in the child's hands. Which is usually a very low tax bracket, right? Exactly. That's the other big benefit of RESPs is... They're usually in a low tax bracket, and that gets taxed at a very low rate. Mm -hmm. uh, now, oftentimes what happens is parents, when they're doing those withdrawals, if they're dealing with someone at the bank who, who isn't really advising them, they're basically told this type of payment costs tax to the child. This type of payment is, is capital, which is, is non-tax. Those parents usually end up taking those capital withdrawals first, which is completely wrong. Mm. Uh, you want to be taking education assistance payments as much as you can as early as possible. As much as you can, the limitation there is now $8,000 in the first semester, $4,000 if they're part-time. That, that limit is just there so that parents are not taking advantage of the RESPs, getting all that growth money out, um, and then the child drops out. In that first mm -hmm. semester, there's a limit of $8,000. After that, there's no longer a limit for education assistance payments. Mm -hmm. uh, capital, there's, no, there's never any limits. Because it's originally your, it's originally your it's, own money. It's your after own money. Tax. Yep. It, was, it was contributed yep. by with after-tax money. So you want to be taking that money out sooner because, first of all, that child, you know, the, that money, if, if, if the child does drop out of school, the beneficiary drops out of school, that money might be stuck in that plan and you can't get it out. And there are other ways to get it out. We'll talk about that maybe briefly. But um, the ideal way is you take that education money out while they're in school, mm -hmm. have them pay the tax on it. Mm -hmm. If they're not, things get complicated. Um, if they're later, if you, if you take that out later in their education, like let's say the first couple of years of school, you only take capital out and the third and fourth year, you take education assistance payments out. I'm thinking about my own situation. In my third and fourth year, I was doing co-op jobs, and my income was 
I don't know, 20,000 or something. You had some income. I had income. Yeah. yeah. And, and so if I had education payments on top of that, it would be taxed at 30 something percent. Um, as opposed to my first couple of years of university where it, you know, I didn't have a job and it would have been taxed at nothing mm-hmm. or almost nothing mm-hmm. if I had, if I had an RESP back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that again is a reason why you want to be taking those out first. And, and when you do the withdrawals, the forms will usually ask how much you want EAP, how much PSE. And, and, and I, and I always stress, take as much EAP out as early as possible. If they drop out of school after two years and there's very little growth and grant money left in the plan, you just take your capital back and there's not a lot lost. Mm-hmm. It's that education money, the, the accumulated income and grant money, if they don't go to school or they don't finish school and there's money left in there, that's when the consequence is you A, lose grant money, the, the grant money goes back to the government. Mm-hmm. B, you potentially get taxed very heavily on the accumulated income. The government wants, they, they have a 20% penalty tax because you've had that money in that plan all those years and you defer, you defer taxation on it you're going to be penalized 20% on taking it out if it's not going to an education uh, assistance payment. Mm-hmm. The out you have is you can put it into your RRSP if you have room. Um, I, either either subscriber, if you have room to put it into the RRSP, you can do that and avoid and I think that penalty. I think that's an important part. It has to be the subscriber who's mm-hmm. who's able to do that. Subscriber or joint subscriber? Yes, that's right. Yeah. If you can do that, great. But um, you know, ideally, you, you avoid those types of situations and you take that education assistance payment out as much as you can. And of course, if it's a family plan and one child doesn't use all of it, that can still go to the other child. The other child yeah. um, there are a couple of other outs when it comes to RESP. So let's say it's not a family plan and the oldest child doesn't use the money. Uh, it can transfer to a younger sibling. And not necessarily a younger sibling, but a sibling under the age of 21. So even if it's not a family plan, it can still be used by a sibling under the age of 21. If they're already maxed out for grants, then that grant money gets lost. But if they aren't, that grant money can transfer over to them. And of course, the education or sorry, the accumulated income does also transfer over. But um, And then the other thing people need to keep in mind too is even if your child does not use that money up by age 23, 25, whatever, the RESP can stay open for 35 years. Uh, there's there's no big hurry. That child might still do something at age 30, like a trade school or whatever, and still have a use for it. Maybe they take a gap year, right? They take a gap exactly, year or yeah. two, either before or in between, right? And it doesn't mean that you have to spend it immediately upon uh, first enrollment of, of a program, right? You can you can you can mm-hmm. kind of space it out is if so if, if if so be the case. Yeah. So no panic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the I mean, the value of the RESP, of course, is we've talked about it. There's grants, there's tax, uh, tax shelter growth. Um, when you take it out, uh, the taxation, if any, is in the child's hands, which is hopefully lower or usually much lower as a student mm-hmm. than, than the parent. With the future and, and sort of the trends, inflation, inflationary um, impacts on tuition particularly uh, is at a higher rate than, than most of the other you know, components of CPI uh, and whatnot and other costs of living. In conjunction with an R, with an RESP, yeah, what, what would you suggest? What are other vehicles or ways uh, that people can look towards saving for helping save money for a potential, uh, um, you know, educational cost in the future? That's a good question. And um, yes, historically, education costs have gone up faster than inflation. I think the number, the numbers when I started out financial planning, they showed the data that over the previous twenty years, um, education costs went up by four percent annually, whereas mm-hmm. inflation was two percent. Mm-hmm. So throughout my planning life, I've always used four percent as the inflation number for education plans. Mm-hmm. Now I think there was a lot of inflation in the nineteen nineties, maybe early two thousands. There's been less since then, so maybe four percent's a bit high. With that being said, you know, we've now seen more serious inflation in the last couple of years. So it doesn't hurt to be a little bit conservative in, in, in using a higher inflation figure. 
Uh, four, so if you did use 4% as an inflation number, if you, if you work it out uh, roughly nowadays, what does it cost for education? I mean, the number I was always using has always been either 10,000 a year if, you know, if they're living at home or 15,000 a year if they're going to school somewhere else and paying for some room and board. Mm -hmm. And that number hasn't really budged much in the last 10 years or so. Um, it might be a little bit higher now, but um, yeah. I know that some uni colleges, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking about uh, colleges and universities in this case, is that now a lot mm -hmm. of them have started to look, you know, because they've also had, um, generally speaking, uh, pressures uh, in costs as well, uh, lower uh, government uh, support funding uh, <clears throat> for such programs as well. And what a lot of uh, universities done, you know, my alma mater at the U of A as well, I, I can recall, is that they increase costs for tuition. Um, by faculty very differently. So if you were yeah. in, a, in a faculty or choosing to go to a faculty that would have a higher earning potential. Uh, so in other words, in particular, the, the health health professional, health me, uh, medical science yeah. type ones, right? Your your dentistry, your, your pharmacy, your, your medical schools, right? Uh, BCom, uh, the business school, the school of business, mm -hmm. the SOBs at the U of A, <laughs> the U of A school of business um, and engineering uh, in particular, yeah, they have found, they had much higher tuition increases and that was almost largely based off of future earning potential because they figured that they could the the enrolled students would be able to um, pay that off in the future, as opposed to That's probably uh, fair. other yeah. you know and other programs such as uh, the arts uh, faculty and, and maybe some of the other science sciences as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, right? Um, is it worth it? Um, you know, there's also commentary. I actually saw something from um, Tim Sesnick that uh, who is a, a fairly uh, prolific. You know, he does a, a column weekly in the Global Mail. He talked about potentially uh, boring for school, guided on what the earning potential is of the underlying program, right? And so, if you are looking at, and he had a rule of ten, I think is what he called mm -hmm. it, and is that if you are expecting, you know, your income upon graduation to be X amount of dollars, then subtract ten thousand dollars from that amount, and then that should be sort of like your target as to the total amount of of uh, loans that you would take. In order to help pay for that education so that you could pay it off within a reasonable mm. decade mm -hmm. right um, so and, and again I, I think some some programs are going to continue to go up i think some programs um the the universities or the colleges will be will likely be open to increasing or maintaining that higher inflationary rate on some programs than others mainly because they know that the underlying you know the, the students will probably be able to pay for it down the road in some form um, but yeah, like to, there, there's there's going to be con ongoing cost pressures. At some point, it, it would probably not make sense to, you know, have engineering programs, for example, at fifty thousand dollars a year in province, right? Um, but mm -hmm. I, I would suspect that they're going to cost more now, or sorry, in the future than they do now. And I know now costs a lot more than when I went, you know, twenty twenty five years ago. Yeah, you know, it's it's fair and all. You know, you do a philosophy degree or whatever, um, you're not going to have as much earning potential, so it's potent, you know, or in general, uh, averages, yeah. Yep. But. Does that also drive more people to the cheaper degrees? I don't, probably not. I don't think people will, will choose a degree based on cost as much, but um, uh, you know, one thing I noticed bank. when I was at the bank, yeah, yeah when I was at the bank, uh, you know, there's, when it comes to financing your, your, your tuition costs, there's obviously the student loans to the government. Um, the banks do student lines of credit and uh, this, the, the regular undergraduate student line of credits, at least when I was at the bank, it was $8,000 per year was the maximum and interest rates were usually prime plus some number. Yeah, pretty, you know, they were cheaper than a, a regular unsecured line of credit, but they were still prime plus something, mm -hmm. um, and limited to, like I said, eight thousand years. So you started with eight thousand dollars, the next year it got up to to sixteen thousand, and so on. For medical students and other types of professions, I think legal students as well, law students, there were special lines of credit, and these things went into the hundreds of thousands. They would throw, <laughs> they throw money at those at those faculty, those, those yes, education, yes, yes, and and they were at prime. I, I believe at the time, at least, they were prime. I'm not sure if they if they still are, but. Mm -hmm. um, 
so the, the banks offer very, very favorable borrowing terms to people in those degrees that have high earning potential. Mm-hmm. And obviously, students in those types of degrees can't afford to run up that much debt because they, they realistically can pay it off. I mean, I don't think, again, not to, not to pick on philosophy degree, but it's, it's usually the, the punching bag when it comes to different degrees, right? Um, there's, I mean, not real job skills in philosophy. <laughs> Fine arts, liberal arts education, Marcus. Liberal Sorry, arts. any clients or anyone listening who has a philosophy degree. A good friend here, a good, good colleague here has a, has a doctorate in, in philosophy. But um, so uh, the the thing is, they're they're gonna have a hard time paying off half a million dollars of student debt, right? Um, that would make some sense. Yes, unless they're inventing some kind of philosophy software that that really you know goes big. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how they may. I don't know what that earning potential might be might look like. But um, so so education costs. Getting back to that question, uh, looking at the numbers, if we assume fifteen thousand a year or so is a good amount to have for education costs on an average degree. If you work it out with that inflation, it's easily $100,000 by the time your child goes to school, if you have a newborn child now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite a bit. And I've done the math, and even if you are maxing out your RESP contributions, that is if not maxing out, but if you're doing the $2,500 a year since they're born, mm-hmm. you're usually going to get roughly to that number uh, with some modest growth and with a grant money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically what that means for most people, if you're contributing the $2,500 a year, getting the grant money, getting a decent amount of growth, 5 6%, and... Are, are, are seeing the cost of inflation go up by, by inflation by, by 4%. Um, and it's and your aim is 15000 a year for four years. You're roughly going to get there, but only just. And that's where, you know, now we need to look at maybe if they are going to go for six years, you know, some kind of, you want to pay for their... After degree. Sec, or yep. for their, yeah, their post-grad degree is what I'm trying to get, to get at. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a more expensive school, they're going to go to med school or whatever. Then you got to look at other things. If, if the parent, if the parent is looking to even to help with that, so most mm-hmm. parents aren't, but uh, some parents do want to help with all their kids' education costs mm-hmm. beyond just the four years. Mm-hmm. This is where the TFSA is really wonderful, super flexible, tax mm-hmm. sheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're probably struggling to fill up your RSP anyway, so you might have TFSA room anyways that you can put towards that one of the spouses. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's a good way. That's a good alternative to save. Absolutely. I think, yeah, the investment vehicles there, particularly the TFSA, is uh, is very complementary uh, above and beyond uh, an RESP. I think also, naturally, <clears throat> there's, uh, you, you can't bank on it, right? But, you know, things like bursaries, other scholarships, things of that nature that help fund, um, you know, lately or recently, like federal student loans, you know, they um, basically the, the, the interest-free holiday, right? And mm-hmm. so those are other ways to look at it. You know, I had loans out uh, for my first uh, couple years. And then similar to you, um, I entered the co-op program and was able to kind of pay that off um, very soon after graduation. <clears throat> and and so there's there's means. Um, but I, I would say that, uh, yeah, the RSP, you, you talked about, you know, again, prioritization of uh, certain types of investment accounts and, you know, focusing on the ability even, you know, being able to save for, uh, for an edu- a child's education. As a, yeah, I think the RSP is, especially with the grants and whatnot, um, fantastic. Um, but then, you know, with current trends, if they continue on to the future, or if you have multiple children or, or, or whatnot, that, uh, that I think the TFSA is is going to be uh, very beneficial in that sense, too. And you can, again, if there's full flexibility. Take it out. It's it's all, you know, non-taxed. It, it, you can gift it, give to your children, what, what have you, right? Um, certainly mm-hmm. uh, a powerful uh, tool to go alongside it. And then even for that, you know, if you want to be very um, specific, when the child turns 18, Right to start then having a TFSA in their name or some other accounts in their name, even as for a year or two. Right, um, there's ways to uh, to have that uh, uh, savings, uh, uh, the complementary savings as well, or the complementary investments to go along with that. There's there's some debate too. Um, let's say you have fifty thousand dollars of TFSA room when the child is born, and you have fifty thousand dollars to save for them, 
and you have $50,000 RESP limits. Which do you do? At that point, I think, you know, for getting back to that previous example, mm-hmm. with, with the money being in the markets longer, mm-hmm. not having to worry about the grant money, mm-hmm. it makes more sense actually to use the TFSA because then you don't have to worry at all about education assistance payments and all this nonsense mm-hmm. because the money is just purely sheltered all the way through. You don't have that room to use for other things, mm-hmm. like if you wanted to use that TFSA money for a car or mm-hmm. retirement, but $50,000 completely tax sheltered versus $50,000 plus $500 grant and have it tax deferred and the and taxes shifted to the other, to, to a lower income earner, it might be better actually using a TFSA in a case like that. And if that kid turns into a movie star and doesn't need the money for their education <laughs> to make lots of money, you've got all that money in your TFSA, you can use it for your retirement. It's so flexible. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at somewhere down the road, uh, there are some adjustments to be made uh, with the uh, um, positive adjustments, I should say, uh, for, uh, for RESPs. It's, it's a speculation on my side of things, right? But yeah. Very... Yeah, so what's our what's our wish list? One, we want the grant limit raised at least to 7,500, right? Maybe 8,000, maybe take into account that there's been a lot of inflation and ed- education costs in the last mm-hmm. 20 years. So actually that 7,200 number, that's, that number's got to be over 15 years old, eh? Since they originally came in with that. Mm. Mm. Th- they raised the lifetime limit in 2007. That's when they raised it to 50,000. And there was a time when you could only put maximum $4,000 a year into an RESP. We got rid of that. But otherwise, a lot of those numbers haven't changed in like 15 years. So that's something they should change is, is up that CESG limit, I think would be. Yep. Or the percentage, maybe. I know that's it's coming out of public offers and whatnot, yeah. right? But if it's not 20%, if you maybe incrementally increase it to 25 or, or 30, like I, it, it's hard pressed again, you know, to maximize $50,000 per child uh, over the course for, for, for many families, not every family, but for a lot of families, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, increasing that 50,000 limits may not fully benefit everyone. Right. Um, but on the, on the other end of scheme, I, I'm sure there'll be proponents to say, you know, if you could move it from 20% and $500 a year and maybe bring it up to 25% or instead of 2,500, bring up to 3,000 a year mm-hmm. and keep the 20%, then you're kind of enabled, yeah. enabled to bring up the, um, you know, the bottom, uh, the bottom range a little bit higher. Right. Yeah, it's obviously it's a cost to the public coffers, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I like I like how the C, the additional CESG works and that it does benefit lower income people more who can't save as much. They get an extra grant. Yeah. So you can do if you want to spend some public dollars on on sweetening the RESP, you can do two things. One, increase the lifetime grant eligibility, increase the annual amount that people can put in to get the grant. Like you mm-hmm. said, from twenty five hundred mm-hmm. to three thousand, make make the annual yep. maybe make the annual limits. Uh, 750 or something yeah. like that yeah. or increase the grant yeah increase the grant itself so yeah. so those what i'm saying is those people who have the means can save more and, and still get more not get more than the 20 percent, but just get a, a greater mm-hmm. number for amount they save mm-hmm. but then also balance it out by sweetening the additional csg so maybe make it a, a 30 percent top up on the first thousand or something like that mm-hmm. for low income and then 20 percent for that mid income uh, so there's there's things like that they can do yeah, no, it, it'll be, I, I suspect that there'll be some changes. I mean, they've they've innovated to bring up the first home uh, buyer savings plan, for example, right? That's mm-hmm. another ball of wax. That's another topic, right? Um, we, they've increased, you know, they <laughs> do, the, they do the, um, the periodic increase to the uh, TFSA contribution limit based off of inflation as well, right? <clears throat> RRSP contr- contributions, uh, you know, those go up incrementally as well. So I, I think it's probably due for an update of, of some sort, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whether that comes in you know, this cycle or next cycle, the election cycle or in this administration or not remains to be seen. But um, I think there probably is a, a worth of review. Um, education yeah. is something that, I mean, people come to Canada for. Uh, it's something that is encouraged uh, greatly. Um, I don't want to necessarily argue that, you know, university program is the new high school or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think just 
further education of some sort, vocational, you know, apprenticeship program, what, what have you, you know, gradually then also just increases the earning potential of, of the society as a whole, which then kind of benefits everybody down the road in terms of, you know, um, taxable income and, and support and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So um, educational costs, I think, are not, they're not going away, right? And especially for people who have children, right? Or advise yep. people who have children or are around people who have children, right? It's, it's very much a reality. It's like, oh my God, how much do I have to save for this, for my kids, you know, for 20 years from now, yep. right? Like, oh, I wish I, you know, I only paid three to $2,500 a term when I was in school. Like, well, yeah, that was 25 years ago, right? So <laughs> it's, 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 it's a far cry. It's been a long, long time, but uh, um, education is also now almost become a necessity uh, or people deem it a necessity, uh, a necessary spend for the future uh, and almost akin to a retirement, right? There's nothing wrong with having a, a population where everyone has a university education, <laughs> even if it's philosophy degrees. <laughs> uh, skills, additional skills, skills that, are, skills, that are learned skills. after, you know, skills. Well. But what I was going to get to is one big thing is being able to show you have the ability to learn beyond grade 12. Because there are those types of people, they they do their high school and they just barely get through, and then they're done, and they yep. just be done with it, and, and they don't want to learn. And they, but if you can show an employer that you 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 took the initiative to get a degree after university, whatever it happens to be, after call after school, you mean after grade grade twelve, sorry, after high school, school sorry, yeah, yeah. after high school, yeah, because that's the most important thing in a lot of careers, including ours. Like I was going to say, in our in our career, it's not a, you don't have to have a business degree or a commerce degree or a yeah, well, a, yeah. economics. I'm, I'm, I'm an example like, of that, right? I'm an engineering degree. Right? There's there's analytics behind it, but it's not a big BCom for that at all, right? We were talking about this some some podcasts ago with uh, with Jeff, our uh, our state planner. He has a chemistry degree, I believe, and mm. uh, I was mentioning another person here in the office has a philosophy degree. One guy has an archaeology degree. Mm-hmm. It just shows that you have that ability to learn because in our career and, mm-hmm. and in most careers, you have to be constantly learning. It doesn't even matter so much what you learn in school. Yes, so it the can be a psychology degree, a philosophy degree, yeah. whatever. But yeah, the ability to learn and continue continue to develop your your skills, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suspect that down the road, uh, maybe you as an uncle too. Um, but you know, those decisions about where, what kind of program to encourage children to go into, where they may take a, uh, that program, uh, whether to take a program at all, right? Um, um, certainly in the last decade or so, there are some proponents that say, just go get some coding and then you're good, right? <laughs> and, and forego yeah. the, the opportunity cost of of, uh, of being in a lecture hall for four years, right? But um, it is, it's an ongoing debate. And I think it's a healthy one, right? Uh, but uh, I, I almost feel like I wish I, t- I was able to, in university, <laughs> in my own opinion, I wish I, was, I had the ability to take some film study classes. I wish I had the ability to take mm-hmm. some philosophy uh, courses. I took some anthro, I took some econ, you know, I, I, I took a, a, um, a classics course. I wish I, has, I had the ability beyond all the other engineering and hard mm-hmm. science courses, right? I wish I was able to take some of that because I think part of that education, being on a campus, being on an environment like that was the opportunity to take those courses, to learn, to be a little bit more rounded, to, you know, learn a yep. little bit about history and other things like that. And um, yeah, I, I think that uh, those programs uh, are, are valuable, right? Edu- university used to be higher learning, used to be that liberal arts sort of uh, oftentimes uh, an education. It wasn't necessarily just to get that engineering uh, degree to get that ticket to go get a job or that finance degree, right? Or the, it, mm-hmm. those are, it, it's almost like those are just tickets, right? It's vocational cool in some ways, right? It, it, it's not necessarily as much as the higher learning as some people go for, right? And you don't have the ability to be able to provide and, and uh, for those people as well. I can tell you one, one elective in my university, I couldn't get into it because there was too high demand and not enough places, was actually, uh, there was a course doing sort of radio media, which I wish I, I took it. I would mm-hmm. it would have helped him doing what we're doing right now here, <laughs> right. recording a podcast. Yeah. But basically, uh, you know, sound editing and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, 
They gotta, the, the opportunity to learn something different. I could go back. Yeah. Take an <laughs> even I could course. go back, I would do a communications degree, really, because everything we do is communications. Writing blog posts, doing yeah. podcasts, yeah. and uh, the investment side, the financial planning side, that's stuff you learn in your career anyways. You don't really learn that in university. As you said, and it's dynamic. There's new things yeah. that have happened um, that didn't exist years ago. There's no such thing as an ETF. Well, I should say, I have to take that back. It wasn't as widely utilized or evolved mm -hmm. as it was, say, a couple generations ago, right? Excellent. Okay, so, so you wanted a communication degree. If you could go back. I kind of wish, I mean, that's kind of the degree I know back in my day, that was the degree that usually the, yeah. uh, the athletes did to just get a degree, <laughs> but it's probably more Sports useful studies. than a business yeah. degree. Like I said, I, I graduated with, uh, you know, the, all the knowledge to run a multinational corporation, which they don't have entry level positions for. <laughs> uh, my other, my other major was management information systems, which talked about, which basically was things like databases and Excel and, and use and implementation of various, uh, you know, management systems like the, the jobs that were available after school for that you have to have like sql experience you have to have oracle experience and you just don't get that in university mm -hmm. um so <laughs> there's yeah there's uh there's other things that would be more useful and and i don't know what if i was telling a young person what to do uh, what kind of degree to pursue i really don't know but like i said it, it pays to just do something human geography that would have been my thing Ge geography Geography is good, yeah. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Psychology by would be yeah. good to. Oh yeah. Be nice to know more about psychology, especially in our in our in our type of work. <laughs> Investing is like ninety percent psychology, ten percent uh, you know things like asset allocation and following yeah. the markets. That's true. Okay, yeah. we'll leave it at that. Um, I'm looking at the time here. It's uh, we're almost at a buck thirty in terms of uh, length of the podcast. I'll speed it up as I usually do, but uh... we'll leave it at that. Excellent. It's been an education. All right. Have a good weekend. views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investments, objectives, financial circumstances, or general needs of any individual, organization, or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect any fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Canadian Investment Regulatory Organization.